Thank you guys for tuning in to Psych in the City. This is Jacqueline, back for another episode. A podcast about nothing and everything. I'm here today with my... That sound you're hearing is my Aunt Patty wiping off of the mic. <laughs> because the virus. Because of the virus. Listen, y'all. I have so loved talking to all of my friends, people that I know, about things that they know about. But I want to know more about my Aunt Patricia. Patty. Oh, wow. Where to even begin? Patty, introduce yourself. Who are you? Hi, I'm Patty. I'm Jacqueline's aunt. That's good. Informational. Patty, you were born in New York City. Yes. You have 700 siblings. Close to. Yeah. And the story that I would like for everyone to hear is that my mom, (laughs) who is going to punch me, she's so close to punching me, when Patty was little. How how much older than you is my mom? 12 years. No, really? Yes. Okay, so my mom was... So I was about three. No. Yes. So my mom was watching Patty, and Patty spilled orange juice, right? Yes. Correct. And my mom used Patty as a broom. Your hair? Actually, forgive me if I get teary. Actually, as a mop. She (laughs) mopped the orange juice off the floor with my hair. And I look like the boxing promoter, Don King. Wow. I'm so sorry. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, But anyway, you were born and raised in New York City. Yes. In the apartment that Grandma lives in? No. No. Where? Uh, Born and raised on 112th Street in Spanish Harlem. In Spanish Harlem, Carlos Santana. Okay, so everybody, the reason why I asked Patty to be on this podcast because she was a part of the New York Police Department for twenty years. Yes, and I want to get to know you, and I want the people listening to get to know you. So, when did you realize that you wanted to be in law enforcement? Probably was about five years old. No. Yes. Oh, after the mop incident, you were like, I want to put people like this behind bars? For child abuse, yes. (laughs) So you were five. What happened? You were just like, Um, aside from my mom torturing you? Yeah, aside from being tortured by my siblings. No, I always kind of like did the right thing. I was always like that kid that didn't do anything wrong. from about the age of five yes i remember my mother wanted me to sneak into the train and i kept telling her no because she had to pay because i was five years old already so it all happened then ramona is like patricia (laughs) okay so that's when you were like you know what i want to uphold the law yes so then how did that so I went to after high school. I went to college. Right after college, I took the tests. Where did you go to school? 
I doesn't even exist anymore. My high school was Immaculata Catholic High School. And then I went to Elizabeth Seton upstate and for college. I was having a conversation. I'm sure this is like the fifth time I've told this story on the podcast, but every person that I talk to about New York, they're always like, oh, yeah, it's upstate. And it's like anyone who doesn't actually live in the city is or in New York in general is like, oh, yeah, anywhere outside of New York City, upstate <laughs> or Long Island. Yeah. It's like, no, that, I mean, what about the western part? But yes. No, upstate. So you took, there was a test? What? Yes, for the police department. I had to take a test. I passed. After that, they do a background check. They do um, not only a criminal background check. They also go out to your neighbors to see the type of person that you are. Yeah. Then there is a physical as well as a psychological test, mm-hmm. which I passed. And surprisingly, um, yes. And then after that, you just wait for the next class. So that's still in place today. Actually, I know a couple, some of some of those things. I know a couple people who are trying to become cops and they needed references for people that they knew. And I actually knew someone that applied to be a police officer and was denied because one of the people that they were like, will you recommend me? Was like, sure. And then they were like, do not fucking hire this person as a police officer. So. Hello, Lucy. Um, we got a couple questions for you. Okay. But you became a cop. And then is there. So I don't know much about like specializations because in my head. Like with a doctor, they go to medical school and then they decide like the specialization and then they get more training on that. So is that the same for being uh, like a detective? And yes. A, okay. Um, at first I went to a precinct within Manhattan and I was in that precinct for about five years. Then I went to work at what's known as the borough, which is every borough, Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, they have a central location known as the borough. And that's all the precincts that are, let's say, within Manhattan. They're, that is their central location, that borough. And I worked there for um, for the chief, and we were kind of like his own task force. And then from there, I worked narcotics for 10 years, and I got my shield out of narcotics because it's an investigative unit. What does that mean? What does shield mean? My detective shield. Ah. Okay. All I know um, about detective work is from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Have you seen that? uh, No. Oh, fatty. No, 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 not at all. Oh, you got it. I don't really watch cop shows. You got it. Okay, this is, it's good though. It's funny. You should watch it. It's about detectives. Okay. It has Adam Sandberg in it. Ah. And Terry Crews. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So from there I got my shield um, as an investigator. Did you, you get know it as you an undercover? To be an investigator? I didn't want to be an undercover, and okay. I know that I wanted to go up in rank, so I chose the investigative track. Okay. And I work narcotics, um, majority in Brooklyn. Okay. Did that for ten years. From there, I went to work for Queen Special Victims, mm-hmm. just like you see on TV. And then from there, I did juvenile crime, and then I retired from there. There's a lot of questions I could ask. Okay, let's talk about juvenile crime. Okay. How do you watch that? Like, go to work every day and then come home. 
Death. Well, that would be special victims. You're oh, about. juvenile victims. crime was mainly people who couldn't take care of their children, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they put out a pins warrant, which is person in need of supervision, and then um, we would monitor those children, and if they got arrested at any time, they didn't go to court, then we would go out and look for them and bring them to court. Uh. That was juvenile crime. Special victims, that was different. That was dealing with... And from birth to the age of 12, anyone who was physically or sexually abused. Um, those who don't know my aunt, she's like the biggest prankster, jokester of all time. How do you like have joy in your heart after seeing kids being abused in that way? Because I can honestly tell you that was the only unit that I honestly felt that was making a difference mm. because mm-hmm. I actually stopped the threat. Yeah. I brought it to an end. I brought their pain and suffering to an end. Because narcotics, there will always be drugs. Yeah. Because it's a money-making industry. There will always be guns. There will always be drugs. But that was something that I could actually make a difference. Um, earlier... Today, you were talking about a time you got shot at. Was that during drugs? That was actually, no, that was working in Washington Heights. Where I don't know where that is. Oh, okay. For those that don't know, Washington (laughs) Heights is the drug capital of Manhattan. It's in the Upper West Side. Mm -hmm. It starts on 145th Street and goes all the way up to Dykeman Avenue, which is past like 204th Street. So, um, simple radio run, man with a gun, we approach the building, he pulls the gun out the window and he starts firing and And you just just hit the ground because you got to think it's, you know, if I shoot at the building, am I going to hit somebody else in an apartment, an innocent person? It was better just to, you know, take cover, Mm -hmm. wait for reinforcement and then apprehend them. So we have some questions from people. Okay. And I'm really excited for some of these. Um, So the first one is, what's it like being a female in your job? When I first got to the precinct in Manhattan, there were only five females working. And one, she worked the midnight shift, which she just wrote summonses. Um, The other two were administrative meaning they didn't go out of the precinct. And then one worked a 4 to 12 shift and the other one worked a day tour. And they really didn't do much. Yeah. So I came in like, you know, I was going to save the world. Yeah. Wonder Woman. Yes. So what like, what was that like? Like more, more information? Um, the guys in the precinct were very welcoming. Um. I guess it was new to them to see somebody want to go and not be inside, to be actually out in the street and mm-hmm. making arrests. Um, I never encountered any any type of discrimination whatsoever. Mm. That makes me really happy to hear that. Um, what is the case that has stuck with you? Would probably be in special victims, mm-hmm. where the victim was about nine years old, and she had been abused not only by her father, 
but her uncle and her grandfather and actually became pregnant by one and um, gave birth. It was a stillbirth. That was one that touched me the most. Yeah. Because she was so young and to be abused by so many members of her family. Mm -hmm. And the fact that her mother actually told me why are you arresting them when the damage is already done to her was like what's done is done and yeah. let's move on you know when you so, were talking i was assuming that the mother wasn't even in the picture because i'm thinking like no how do mom you was let... mom would go out of the house she from what we know she knew nothing about it um but you know who knows yeah who knows no, but everyone was arrested and after serving their time here, they will get sent to their country. Um, was there any time that you wanted to quit because it became too much? Mm, actually, no, never. Yeah. No, I enjoyed all the 20 years that I did. I was very active. Um, you know, I made a difference in a lot of people's lives and I never had that desire to say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. Um, so I want to talk about 9-11. Okay. So how long were you in the force when that happened? Um, I was had about 11 years on. So what was that day like? Start, start to finish. I was in narcotics and we were waiting for an undercover to come because we had a wiretap and we had to take the tapes down to court mm -hmm. and the investigating officer as well as the undercovers have to go down together to turn the tapes in and the undercover was always late this one particular undercover and I remember waiting and getting a call from my mother mm -hmm. your grandma saying you know put on the news a plane hit like the twin towers and I'm like ma you got to stop watching the Spanish news. Right, right, and she's right, right. Like, It's freaking ABC. It's <laughs> Channel 7. So, you know, I yell out to somebody because it was an open um, office, you know, put the TV on. So somebody put the TV on and we see a plane hit. Right away, we knew we were going to be deployed because we were the closest precinct. Although we were right in Brooklyn, there. we were the closest to the Brooklyn mm -hmm. Bridge. So um, as soon as the second plane hit, that was it. They told us to suit up, which means to put uniform, because normally I wouldn't wear a uniform. And um, we were actually the first unit to go down there when, before the buildings came down. Okay, so you get there. Mm -hmm. And it's total chaos. Yeah. Everybody is running out of control. The amount of smoke and the heat from the flames and people using their jackets or scarves, whatever they had in the office as parachutes and trying to jump mm. out of the building. Right to safety. I don't know if it was so much that they wanted safety or they figured from the height, I'll either get a heart attack and die or the impact is going to kill me. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you stay there and burn to death? Like, I don't know. Maybe that's the reason why. Or some people thought, hey, I can maybe parachute down. I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking, but you can hear the bodies hit the awning. Mm -hmm. What did your 
I don't even know what the right word is, boss tell you when you were like, hey, you're um, going what, like. Before, as we were driving down, it was like, you know, you're going to see things that you've probably never seen before. Yeah. And you got to prepare yourself for that. And then it was pretty much, we weren't so much on the direction. It was kind of like you saw something, you just reacted. So if you saw somebody coming out and they were bleeding, you try to take them to an ambulance. Um, and then it got to a point where they started to scream, the building's coming down. And there's a Burger King that's directly across the street. Mm-hmm. Had to be about 300 of us piled into the Burger King. It was already abandoned by employees and everybody else. Um, we piled in there and just stood there for what like, seemed like forever. Yeah. But it was probably just a couple of minutes. You could hear the building come down. You could feel the heat. Um, that was probably the only time that I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die in here. Because if that building sways yeah. towards, you know, the Burger King, we're all, we're all going to die. And um, then you can hear it when everything settled. And we came out, and then it's just like, I mean, mass panic. You would see a hand and be like, oh my God, and everybody would start digging and it was just a hand. Yeah. Or you would see a leg and everybody's like, oh my God, there's a body there and then it's just a leg, you know? Um, and we were there, well, I was there for about two weeks and I ended up actually, that night I ended up um, getting some fiberglass in my eye from the building. And so I was, you know, taken away by ambulance and it was such a crazy situation because all the hospitals, doctors, they're just waiting. They were waiting for victims and there were no victims being brought to the hospitals. Oh my God. So when that ambulance pulled in with me, it was like 10 doctors just jumped on top of me. I mean, they stripped me naked and I'm like, it's just my eye, you know? (laughs) And they're, they're putting IV, they're checking everything. I mean, little did I know that they actually knew that you know, concrete and carpet and everything else shouldn't burn to the way that it did burn. And that was the reason why they were testing my oxygen level and everything else. Um, you know, they cleared me there. I had to go see an eye specialist. And I was lucky because they told me a little bit more and I would have lost vision in my eye. Mm. Um, but, you know, I know a lot of people that have died. They've gotten cancer. I mean, I'm you know, yes, I have sarcoidosis and I do have, you know, thyroid cancer, but there's so many people that are so much worse than I am. Yeah. So I count my blessings that, you know, I'm still here. So when you were going back the next couple of days, like what were even your instructions? Like just be there to respond to? Well, the next couple of days where we start, because there was just so much, um, so much rubble. The fire was still burning for a couple of days, so we couldn't go into the adjoining buildings to check for any survivors because of that. So they waited until the next day, and then we did searches within the buildings, mm-hmm. and we found um, on the roof of a building, we found two passengers strapped into their seats from the airplane. They had ejected the seats with them, seat belted through the plane and they landed on the roof of a building and um, they were burned beyond recognition but you could see that it was two bodies it was two airplane seats you know Um, you don't realize the size of a wheel of an airplane until you're like standing right next to it it's 
I can't even imagine what those people went through. Yeah. When that that plane hit that building. So in the days that followed, it was just more recovery. It was just trying to search and and more so seeing if we would find anything that belonged to anyone, mm-hmm. because we knew there wasn't going to be any survivors. Yeah. But it was more to give um, family that little bit of closure. Yeah. Find an ID card. Yeah. Find a bracelet. You know. Um, everything from there was taken to the 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 city dump in Staten Island, the landfill, and we would sift through everything to see if we would find stuff. Um, it's crazy because the first day I was in the landfill, I'm raking through piles and I'm like why is there so much wet cardboard yeah and the guy that works at the landfill tells me that's not cardboard that's human flesh that it would it just burned off of people and it was just in the rubble and the piles of garbage it was just it was something unbelievable and then how do you just like continue I can't imagine seeing that and just going about my life like how do you well that were the, there resources like yes, my they, like, they therapist had, brain is like what resources were what well therapy did mount you get? mount sinai did um they have a 911 world trade center program where they're treating everyone that was first responder even people that lived in the area mm-hmm. um that might have suffered you know from the smoke and everything else and they do have they have people that you can speak to you know um you know I had at the time a very good support system at home and stuff and you know you got to talk about it because that's the only way you can work through anything you know yeah um I guess when I was doing that, my mindset wasn't so much like, oh, my God, there's like a plane sticking out of this building. It was like, I'm going to try and save as many lives as I can save. Yeah. You know, Um, and and I was fortunate that I didn't see too many, you know, um, bodies, too much stuff like that. Yeah. (sighs) I have. That's why when people talk about cops, I would love for them to walk a day in my shoes. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to get there, Patty. I know (laughs) you're itching for some of those questions. We're going to get there. I promise you. (laughs) I have another question from Mm -hmm. one of my followers is just, would you do it over again if you were brought back in time right before you started your job? Absolutely. Yeah. Even knowing that I would get sick, even knowing that, you know, I could lose my life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I took an oath and I honor that oath to, to protect life, to put others' lives before my own. Mm. I have some detective questions Mm -hmm. because I don't know if you know this about me, but I love a good murder podcast. Okay. I love any murder documentary uh i've seen the oj simpson documentary and like when they you know with cuba Mm -hmm. i've seen that multiple times so is that i know you said you don't watch cop shows Mm -hmm. like is that like is that real is that really how they do it they just like come they just the only show that 
I can say is relatively pretty relative. pretty close mm -hmm. to what we go through is um, Law and Order SVU. Okay. And only because the actors actually bother to go to the special victims unit mm -hmm. and do mm -hmm. ride-alongs because they wanted to make it as realistic as possible. Yeah. But... Um, other than that, like, you know, NYPD Blue, that was just, oh, my God. It would make me cringe, the things that they would do. I was like, oh, my God, that's not what happens, you know. And and these other shows, like there's a show called Tommy, and she's a police chief, and nobody has respect for her. Oh, my God. I'm like, that that's is just mm -hmm. so, that's TV. Yeah. That's not how it is. And I think that's what people see, and that's what they think that, you know, police work is. I still think you should watch Brooklyn Nine Nine because it's so. Good. Right, I want to watch it it's just for so you, just to funny. see what it's all about. It's so good. I think you're like a, you're like a mix of some of the characters. I want to see if you can figure it out. Okay. When you watch it. Um. Okay. So I have a couple more questions. I don't know if you're gonna be able to answer these. Because. Okay. I'm sure you guys are sworn to secrecy. The first question is: How often did you have to deal with the mob? Um. Well, when, as far as riots, is that what they mean? Or the mob as far as Italians? Like the mafia? Like Italians. Like what a, yeah, like the mafia. The well, mafia. There, there are specialized units that deal with that. Really? Yes. And that's all I will say. Okay, honestly, yeah, that is one thing that fascinates me. Like, I think I grew up, you know, in a suburb. And so to me, I'm thinking like, Oh, okay, like the mafia. Like you talked about wiretaps. Mm. I was like, oh, that's, I mean, like I know it is real because I am yes. a, a, an adult, you know, mm -hmm. but it's just so strange. That it's like one degree of separation between like you were actually putting wiretaps and yes. listening to those. Yes. Oh, wow. Um, okay. There's another question about the mob mm. and I know you didn't deal with them. And that's more like, um, it's not so much now because there's no loyalty now. Yeah. Um, back in the like Gotti days and stuff like that, like people were loyal. Like yeah. you go to jail because you knew they were going to take care of your family. Yeah. But now it's about one upping the next person. So there isn't, mm -hmm. there's not that loyalty even in the mob, you yeah. know? So it's not something that we deal with as much now, yeah. you know, that was more like, the 70s and the 80s even like you know some of the 90s but it's not as much now it's now it's more trying to take down like these drug cartels and things like that the funny thing is when you said uh that you worked in narcotics mm -hmm. i immediately thought mafia i didn't think cartels mafia is more of a mafia is more of a like they do more of, you know, your money laundering, your things of that nature, you know, um, where narcotics just deals with, you know, these drugs that are coming in from all over. Yeah. All over. And you would be surprised how they get the drugs here. I mean, there are people walking around with, you know, there are people that are mules, that they're on an airplane. They could be sitting on an airplane next to you and you, you have no idea. Know. Um, I'm pretty sure my mom told me a story and maybe you can confirm whether or not this is true. Um, when I was a kid that there was like 
a kid that was missing and there was like a train station and you found the kid but he was like full of drugs and they were like they had taken out they had already well they had killed it and they he came yes he came i won't say where he came from but he came from another country and what they told the what they tell them is that you know you do this and we're going to take care of your family Mm-hmm. And we're going to give, once we know that you've landed, you've made the delivery, then your family will get X amount of money. Mm-hmm. And what they do with a lot of these young kids is that they tell them this once they get here, if they don't really have strong ties to a lot of family, what they'll do is they'll just wait till they get here. They'll cut them open and leave them in the street till they slit their stomach open, took the drugs out and left them right there in the street. Yeah, my mom, you working in special victims. No, narcotics. And narcotics mm-hmm. both ruined my childhood. I'm well, just kidding. <laughs> my mom was like always telling me these stories about, oh my God, your Aunt Patty did this. Listen, and I was like, imagine what my daughter went through. She never stood over at anyone's house. Yeah. She never had, she had sleepovers at my house. She didn't stay at anyone's house. I mean. Because you yeah. don't know. Yep. You can't trust anybody. It's okay. sad to say, but you can't. Moral of the story, don't trust anybody. <laughs> okay, we have a couple more questions. We're getting we're getting to the part that you want to talk about. Okay. Um, do you there's I don't even know if you know the answer to this. Did you know that retired vice detective that ran that prostitution ring? I don't even know what that is. No. Okay. I don't no, even no, know no. what that is. Well, to Carlos, I asked your question. Um, craziest story that you have. Craziest story. Um, in narcotics, um, well, when I when I was uh, an investigator, they had what was called dual status. So, which means they can use you as an undercover if they needed to. Right. And um, so I had to play like I played a hooker. No. Yeah, can you believe that me? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's when I was, I went with the drug dealer. We were at this club, and I was like his hooker girlfriend, and the bartender was not only serving drinks, just listening to not this. Not only I serving would drinks, never. he was also selling coke from the bar, and so I would, you know, we'd get a drink, and now, you know, you know, I don't drink. So I'd have to, whatever nonsense drink it was, I would take it. I'd get, you know, a couple bags from him, go to the bathroom. Allegedly, I was snorting them. You know, I was dumping my drink in the toilet and, and you know, hiding the drugs. And I would go back Shirley and Tempo. forth. I couldn't do a Shirley Temple. <laughs> I couldn't do a Shirley we'll Temple when I'm buying Coke. A Shirley Temple exactly, and, and Coke. I'm buying Coke. So, uh, be like, no, no, sorry, I don't drink. And but then, I do do drugs. What was a little scary was that they couldn't hear me. Mm. So they couldn't hear me and they couldn't see me. So I was pretty much on my own. And I had no weapon because I couldn't. I, you know, because you get searched as you go into the club. So I had no weapon. Um, They weren't able to see me. They weren't able to get in touch with me. And, but they kept asking the guy that I was with, if she's supposed to be a drug addict, why does she look so fit? They kept asking him. He was like, no, but you know, she's got to look a certain way, you know, because she has a job, whatever. Yeah, like, supposedly tricks. I just had a habit, but I was really, you know, yeah. like I had a job and I had this habit and yeah. I would, 
and I would be a hooker just to make some extra money and you know and then when things got a little bit where the guy was like oh well then let me talk to her like you know he wanted me to do stuff then it was like um all right yeah it's time for us to go you know so then once I left and everybody went in they locked everybody up and you know that was it but it was a little scary because I didn't have you know no means just myself to protect myself you know and it was a bar and I was the only woman in there and it was all men so I can't even I'm trying to imagine what you wore yes oh my god I wore pants that I probably got a yeast infection from because they were so tight yeah um yeah yeah so it's you wouldn't want to see me dressed like that so I'm like trying my darndest to imagine and I can't yeah and then when you work with you know, when you have a steady team that you work with and if you pretend to be like, if the undercover pretends to be a drug dealer and you got to be his girlfriend, you know, they take advantage. Like, you yeah. know, my undercover, like he kissed me, he slapped me in the ass, yeah. you know, and I hugged him before I left and I told him like, I'm going to kill you when we get back to the office, you know, <laughs> and he slapped my ass it. again yeah. and I had to just take it and, you know, go to the office. And then I was like, you asshole. Wow. Well, well, but. Was- you know, like 16, trying to buy cigarettes as a sting operation for the Macabo Police Department, sweating through you, my shirt, so, and you were like, and I was being a hooker. A hooker. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I remember there was a guy who came to our Girl Scout troop meeting when I was like, oh, like 13, and he like had the beard. He worked in narcotics. He had mm-hmm. the beard, and he was all scraggly, and he was undercover, and like. He talked about that, about how when you're trying to get them to sell you the drugs, it's sometimes mm-hmm. they would be like, well, take, do it yeah. right now. And you got to do it. Sometimes you have to. But um, there are things that they that they can reverse the trace of it when you get to the hospital and they know you're a cop. There's also really? ways that you can, can seem like you're shooting up, but you're really not. So, okay, so enough what, that you can get away without actually like, having take, to do it. Take this bump right now. Well, we we've had um, undercovers that they told them you got a crack pipe on you, you got to take a hit right now. <gasps> Smoking crack, and they had to, they had to. But what people don't know is you have a certain amount of time to get to the hospital before it actually gets, you know, into your bloodstream. Because he wasn't like he wasn't sitting there lighting up with them. It was just like take a hit and leave, you know. Yeah. So. Oh my God. That would, yeah, that that's would terrify me. That's why they couldn't pay me enough to be an Keep, undercover like that. Yeah, I didn't do that. No. You want me to be a hooker? You want some guy to, you know, okay. to solicit, you know, car pulls up. Hey, what do you want? And they're like, yeah, I hey, want around the world. Want I want whatever. Yeah. Then, yeah, that, but I'm not, I'm not doing drugs. I'm not doing that. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I would be so afraid to even say, like, oh, I have a job interview tomorrow. Like, yeah. what are you supposed to say when they're like, smoke this crack? You have to. It's either smoke that crack or they're going to put a gun to your head. So, Pass and as an pipe. undercover, you're not, you're not going in there armed. Yeah. You know, so. I'm like, my palms are sweaty. Just I give a lot of it. credit to those undercovers. I really do. This is why my police career was very short lived. Well, <laughs> it's never too late. Patty, there was a shooting in Sacramento when I was like 18. And I remember hearing the gunshots and everyone sca- And then I remember looking towards the bar and seeing the guy come out and shoot the security guard. And the fear that just through the core of my body 
and I just froze. And I was luckily I was with someone and they scooped me up and ran. Mm-hmm. I think I was in ROTC at the time, but that's when I knew I was like, I don't have the mental grit to And imagine do this. if we don't have cops to handle those situations. I was like <laughs> All right. So we got some some questions. Mm-hmm. Um what do you since you're retired now, this yes. question I'm gonna ask it and mm-hmm. we can change it. So what do you think it's like being a police officer in a world where many young people hate police? Oh, I could never be a cop right now. Because because the amount of disrespect mm-hmm. is disgusting. Yeah. I actually saw a photo of a woman giving her daughter, who was about, say, no more than three years old, mm-hmm. a sign that says, fuck the police. Mm-hmm. This is the what she is teaching. And children at the age of three are like sponges. They absorb everything. And this is what she's teaching her three-year-old. So yeah. imagine when that three-year-old is now an unruly 13 or 14-year-olds because that's just how teenagers are. Yeah. There, there is, there's no respect for not only law enforcement, there's no respect for each other. There's no respect for adults at all. Mm-hmm. I could never be a cop now. I'm going to put a pin in that because mm-hmm. you said something and it made me think. Um, so I agree with you about the mutual respect just between people, humans. So I'm thinking about the 90s mm. my mom is taking out the trash while we're doing this podcast everyone <laughs> so i'm so sorry <laughs> that you're hearing her <laughs> but it's cute so um she, document my mom took out just throwing something away yeah um so in the 90s you have bands like nwa right mm-hmm. fuck the police so this is not a new thing. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, and I think that that was, I mean, fact check me, Rodney King was 1994? No, before that, because O.J. Simpson was 94. Well, I got on and um, it was before because I came on the job in 1989. So if I had a production team, they would be looking up the facts for me right now, but I don't. Um, so that's the era. <laughs> My mom's got a job now. So that's the era that I'm thinking of. We have, mm-hmm. we have Rodney King. Mm-hmm. We've got, um, NWA, OJ Simpson, which was a lot of contro- controversy because it was, okay, um, going from Rodney King police brutality to now this is a black hero that now they're saying, oh, the cops planted all of this evidence. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of just turmoil within the community. And that's in L.A. In New York, we had um, Abner Louima, mm -hmm. who was, he was sodomized by a police officer. Okay. Um, But as far as the difference is that In the 80s and the 90s, you had an argument with somebody, you had a fight with somebody, 
you had a fight with somebody and that was it. They yeah. didn't come back and get a gun and shoot you, shoot your mother, shoot your kid, your sister. Um, you know, that's now it's like you have an argument with somebody and you bump into somebody in a store. You don't know if they're going to take out a gun and shoot you mm. because nobody values anything. They're not valuing life. They're not valuing anything at all because they don't have these morals because they're being they're being raised by mothers that are showing their three-year-olds to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hold up a sign that says, you know, fuck the police. Do you think that there's a difference between like LAPD, New York, Seattle, Texas, or do you think like th we are all experiencing the same? Um, everybody right now is experiencing the same regardless of whether it happened in you know, Minnesota, it happened in Alabama, it happened in Jacksonville, Florida, wherever it happened. It's just all across the board. Everybody's mm -hmm. mentality now is that the police are all, you mm -hmm. know, racist and which is funny because I remember a day after 9-11 driving down and, you know, we were in uniform every single day. So I was going home in uniform, coming back into work and stuff. And I remember being at a red light and cars beeping me and I look and people literally had signs that said thank you yeah. and sticking them out the window. We're still those same cops. Yeah. How did we become these racist, abusive cops? And what I don't understand is there are close to 33,000 police officers. Mm -hmm. Even if you have 100 police officers that are going around beating people, what's that percentage? Of 33,000. So what do you think changed? Like, what do you think made it? The, well, I know in growing up that if the cops, like I had a lot of brothers. If the cops were to bring my brothers home, oh my God, the beating that they would have gotten. Yeah. And they wouldn't allow that to happen because they respected my parents. Yeah. Is that that's what we're lacking is is that respect mm. like I remember being you know in the latter years before I retired like going and calling a mother okay hey we picked up your son we're taking him now to juvenile court well I don't care you do what you got to do mm. like, this is your kid yeah like I don't care you do what you got to do I mean there's someone else had an interview that said something kind of similar but it was more about like education and like the role of parents and how you know it's not the kids fault now it's the teacher's fault like oh well you know you didn't teach them correctly you know so like in my head you're picking someone up and I'm thinking when you were doing it versus now mm -hmm. I think you would call that same parent and be like hey we picked up your son for vandalism, mm -hmm. whatever it was. And instead of them being like, okay, like do what you got to do, it would be a very different response. Oh, absolutely. What I say, do what you got to do, meaning that the parent was like, I'm not even going to go to court. I don't do care. Mm -hmm. Like, not like, you know what? I'm glad you picked them up. You yeah, know what? Yeah. Let him Discipline. stay there. Yeah. Let him know. Uh -huh. It wasn't that. It was an attitude of like, I don't care. And when they release him, he can get a bus, whatever, come home. Like, they they didn't care that he was out in the street, 
you know, at two, three o'clock in the morning committing his crime, which is the reason why he got locked up to begin with, you know, like, why is that kid out at two or three o'clock in the morning? Yeah. All right, guys, we're at our 45 minute. We're going to end this episode, but tune in next week when we get into the meat of what we're trying to talk about. So we'll have Patty back. It'll be great. So if you would like to hear some more, like and subscribe. Psych in the City. We're on Instagram. Um, yeah. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome.